Greetings and salutations, everybody. CJ here. Welcome to episode 209 of the Dangerous History Podcast. I'm going to keep the introduction pretty brief this time. This is, of course, part two of my recent conversation with Brett Vinat of School Sucks. And this is the part of the conversation where we dig into DHP episode 205, Divide and Conquer, Divide and Rule. So I would highly recommend that if you haven't already, you go listen to that episode, maybe re-listen to it if you listened to it when it first came out and haven't since, if you'd like to refresh your memory on it. In the conversation, we talk not only about some of those historical instances of those tactics being used, but we also talk about what may or may not be going on today and what different factions may be trying to leverage different types of divide and rule and or divide and conquer for their own purposes. And in the conversation, Brett references an interview done by G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, with a Soviet spy who defected to the West and was describing the tactics by which communists would subvert a society. And in his broadcast of our conversation, Brett actually put a segment of that interview in at the beginning of the show, and so I've gone ahead and done that here as well. I've included it. So that's the first thing you'll be hearing after the intro music in just a moment is this conversation between G. Edward Griffin and this Soviet defector. So just so you know what the heck that is when you get to it. And then, of course, we launch into Brett and I talking in depth about divide and conquer, divide and rule. Other than that, I just, again, want to thank Brett for setting up this what ended up being two crossover episodes, and urge everybody who isn't already following School Sucks to go to schoolsucksproject.com. And also, yes, I'm busy as I'm getting buried by the day job, and it's horrible and super tedious and time-consuming doing every single class online, most of them for the very first time, for me. I'm still nonetheless squirreling away minutes here and there to chisel away at the next Woodrow Wilson episode. And I already have part of it recorded. I'm still working on my notes for the rest of it, though. But do not fear. I'm doing my best to improvise, adapt, and overcome in the situation in which I find myself. And though life may have slowed me down lately, I will not let it stop me. Take care, everybody. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yuri Alexandrovich Bezmianov. Mr. Bezmianov was born in 1939 in a suburb of Moscow. He was the son of a high-ranking Soviet Army officer. He was educated in the elite schools inside the Soviet Union and became an expert in Indian culture and Indian languages. He had an outstanding career with Novosti, which was the press arm or the press agency of the Soviet Union. It turns out that this is also a front for the KGB. He escaped to the West in 1970 after becoming totally disgusted with the Soviet system, and he did this at great risk to his life. He certainly is one of the world's outstanding experts on the subject of Soviet propaganda and disinformation and active measures. Well, you spoke several times before about ideological subversion. That is a phrase that uh, 
I'm afraid some Americans don't fully understand. When uh, the Soviets use the phrase ideological subversion, what do they mean by it? Ideological subversion is, is the slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, in the language of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing process which goes very slow and it's divided in four basic stages. The first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. For the last 25 years, actually it's overfulfilled because demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation. What, what matters is essentials. Economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense, an economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. 
This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kind of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with the benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind whether the promises are fulfillable or not. Your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the, of the uh, uh, subversion only to destabilize the nation. When their job is completed, they are not, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when, when they get disillusioned, when they see that Marxist-Lenin has come to power, they, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. But they may turn into the most bitter enemies of Marxist-Leninists when they come to power. And that's what happened in Nicaragua. You remember most of these uh, former Marxist-Leninists were either put to prison or one of them split and now he's working against Sandinistas. It happened in, in uh, Grenada when Maurice Bishop was, he was already a Marxist. He was executed by, by a new Marxist who was more Marxist than this Marxist. Same happened in Afghanistan when uh, first there was Taraki, he was killed by Amin, then Amin was killed by Babrak Karman with the help of KGB. Same happened in, in Bangladesh when Mujibur Rahman, very pro-Soviet leftist, was assassinated by his own Marxist-Leninist military comrades. It's the same pattern everywhere. The time bomb is ticking, but every second the disaster is coming closer and closer. Unlike myself, you will have nowhere to defect to. All right, so a couple months ago, you put out a podcast. It's Dangerous History 205. It was called Divide and Conquer, Divide and Rule. When I listened to this show, I listened to it twice. I think I said, geez, how, <laughs> how usefully idiotic are we being right now where something comes up and i'm happy to debate the origins of the whole crisis that we've been dealing with in this country since the end of february but shortly after that we know when we start to see i think in march and april when we start to see the costs we know there is some form of civil unrest that is going to follow this right we know that various aspects of of society especially like the people who've been listening to things like the survival podcast we know that this is very likely the catalyst for a high degree of of destabilization and demoralization in society that could lead to spikes in crime spikes in violence um exacerbation of differences that had already been exacerbated by you know, the way people are interacting around politics and other social issues online for the last five or so years. Like this is um, a real stress test of the cohesion of the entire country. And I think as far as a, as a governing strategy, I thought like the, the, a lot of the divisions that would happen, even though I don't think I had any sense that it would be like a racial thing until like maybe, uh, I think the first time I mentioned it on a podcast was in May, where there were these two guys who shot uh, a black jogger. So I don't know if you heard, you remember that story. It was like 
three weeks before the George Floyd thing. And that story, it, it seemed like they were trying to, to race bait around that story, but then it just kind of fizzled and, and then the George Floyd thing happened and, um, off we went. But I never thought of it, I guess, as a governing strategy that to really truly divide and rule. And I'm going to ask you to explain what all this means in a minute. You would want to, if you were, you know, a smart, forward looking, Machiavellian, um, type of ruling class, you would want to create a situation where people were unaware or certainly through distraction willing to overlook some of their common interests. If they're being told like they can't earn money, they can't go out of their house, they can't do anything that they they like to do, um, and and there's some possibility of revolt, it would be wise to find a way to effectively hedge against that. Now, this sounds very conspiratorial, but in this podcast, like everybody, I think, understands what divide and conquer is and this thousand year old strategy, you know, like when the Romans go to uh, to deal with the Celts or uh, there's probably examples of this where uh, doing westward expansion in the United States uh, to deal with the Native Americans. You don't allow people to to come together and that makes it easier to pick them off one by one if there's a disunion and even if they're, you know, picking each other off along the way. And it doesn't mean you have to create the divisions. You just need to know how to exploit them. But divide and conquer is distinct from divide and rule. So uh, as the historian and the expert on this subject, I just wanted you to uh, differentiate between the two. Yeah, so it's it's the same principle. It's just you know what's the strategic situation that you're dealing with that that right. differentiates divide and conquer from divide and rule. So divide and conquer is what you do. It's kind of just what it what it sounds like. It's what you do if you're trying to take over a, a territory and a group of people that you didn't have control of to begin with. You figure out what divisions exist there that you can exploit because usually in in situations where especially if you're like an imperialist going to some far distant side of the world to take a place over there's a good chance that at least out there on the ground in the frontier you're outnumbered like you may have way more people back at, in the mother country at home like you know you're you're britain going to take over a piece of africa or something like that right you may have more people in total counting all of the UK and whatever, but um, on the ground in Africa, probably you're vastly outnumbered by all the locals in the region. And so what you do, and, you know, the British did this in too many places to count. The Spanish did it, you know, when taking over like the Incan Empire and the Aztec Empire. As you said, Julius Caesar, I mean, it literally is one of the oldest tricks in the book. I think I said in the episode, like, I, I honestly believe that, like, savvy caveman chieftains were pulling this way back before recorded history. We just have no record of it. But I'm sure they were figuring it out because we're crafty. We're crafty uh, uh, tribal primates, right? No, and that was the thing that was frustrating when I listened to the episode, which was maybe I heard it end of July, early August. And I like I told you before we started, I just listened to it again uh, recently. But I was like, geez, this is the oldest trick in the book. And it is cliche like divide and conquer at least is yep. cliche yep. right every american and certainly all of these people who are participating in this political war this culture war this civil war in this country right now are aware that is becoming like an actual hot war are familiar with this phrase but in the midst of all this 
they're completely oblivious to the fact that they could be uh, some kind of useful idiot in a strategy like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you go in, you find pre-existing divisions because it's hard to just make divisions from scratch in a, in a cohesive unified society. So, right. you know, you look and you find like, oh, this, this uh, resource rich area that we want to take over. Oh, look, there's like, you know, two, three, four different tribes and maybe some oh, of them have been. Yeah, exactly. Have, yeah. Some of the tribes have been lording it over their neighbors. And so, hey, maybe you can get to be buddies with all these, you know, kind of subservient tribes, right? This is what Cortez did with the, with the Aztecs. He, he made alliances with the tribes that were sort of under the boot of the Aztecs. You make alliances with some against others, and then you, you know, use that to, to get control. And then if need be, you eventually, uh, if you have to, and you're able to, you can always throw the people you started off being allied with under the bus at some point and double cross them. But, right. but then, you know, once, if you've already got control of a place and you're looking to keep control, um, you know, all us uh, good libertarian anarchists who've read things like Anatomy of the State or, or um, Etienne de la Boetie's uh, Discourse on Voluntary Servitude or whatever, we all understand that we are not the state. The state is not us. The state really is a very, very small percentage of any place. And so by definition, even if they're not like ethnically or whatever distinct the way they would be in a place like British India, the elite is always a very small, distinct percentage of society, the, the political class, etc. They're always vastly outnumbered by the regular folks. And so how do you, whether it's like a, a foreign imperial possession or it's just your own country, right? If you're the, the guy at the top of the pyramid, um, or, you know, the small cabal that's really kind of running things, you're vastly, vastly outnumbered. And so one of the, the most important tools in your toolbox to keeping your position at the top of the pyramid is to prevent the overwhelming majority of people from making common cause and realizing that you're lording it over all of them. And instead to get them so obsessed with fighting amongst each other that you're able to First off, it's a great distraction, right? If if everyone's you know going at each other over Republican, Democrat, Black, White, whatever it is, male, female, then they're not looking up up the pyramid at you, right? So it's a distraction, and then you can leverage those divisions uh, when you need to for for horizontal enforcement, you know. So one of the the specific historical examples I talked about in some detail in that episode was the the way the British ran their their Indian army that they they specifically recruited only from uh, particular places and, and ethnic and religious groups. And they did everything they could to keep all of the different religious and ethnic groups within their, their Indian army separate from each other. And to like really kind of encourage, you know, the, the sense that, that these different groups of Indians were like these uh, and they were very, very, very much put it in racial essentialist terms that would appeal to either an alt, alt-right uh, race realist or, or to an SJW type person. This idea of, of racial essentialism that like, oh, no, your personal qualities are all um, like genetic, you know, in your race and they're immutable and everyone in your race shares these characteristics and um, to, to really cultivate that sense among the different you know, they organized their Indian army into, into military units based on race and religion very rigidly and kept them separate from each other. And the idea was 
1857, there was the, the Indian mutiny where a good percentage, though, though not all of the British Indian Army actually mutinied. And then you run into, you know, making sure, A, that you have enough soldiers that aren't part of the mutiny, and B, that they'll be loyal enough that if you order them to shoot the Indian soldiers that are mutinying, they will do it, right? And the British were able to hang on. They, they kept enough of their Indian soldiers, uh, stayed loyal to them during the mutiny, that they were able to, to uh, brutally put down those who were rebelling. But it was a kind of a close-run thing in some instances. It was, you know, not, a, not an easy, overwhelming uh, victory. And so it kind of spooked the British quite a bit. And so they had already before the mutiny been doing that kind of stuff, uh, those racial policies, but they like tripled down on it. And basically were like, we want to make sure that a, if there is a mutiny, it's only going to be in like some small specific part of the army, not across the whole thing. And B that all the other, the other uh, ethnic and religious units and whatever that aren't part of the mutiny, they'll be totally fine with mowing down those other Indians, because we've convinced them all that they're so racially and religiously distinct from each other that they have no, co- they have no commonality. And, and this is a very, I, I think there's really something to take away from looking at how they did this, because the way they did it, they were simultaneously inculcating in, in these people as much as they could. Number one, there is, you don't have any common Indian identity let alone just right, a common right. a common human identity, right? Even above that. Which in India is a super easy place to do this too because oh, yeah. of the caste system. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of like, you know, ethnic and religious diversity within India, right? It's not like the, the way, you know, Westerners often just think like, oh, there's this group called Indians, right? Um, there's actually all these different, you know, sub subgroups of, of different ethnic and language and religious groupings and whatever. Mm-hmm. So you try to prevent people from identifying with each other as all being one large nationality or even as just all being human beings, you know, and you also try and discourage them from thinking of themselves as all being unique individuals too. And so where you see the, the British racial policies in the Indian army um, in my mind runs very parallel to like a lot of the woke SJW racial ideas is if you look at the woke SJW race ideology, it denies the importance of individuality and, and, individual uniqueness it says no no no. all of your important characteristics come from your race right but it also right. simultaneously denies anything larger like potentially oh but we're all americans or even oh but we're all people right so mm-hmm. it tries to focus all of your self-concept on this like middle category that's defined as race in this case right and that yeah. that is that is like if you're gonna level leverage people for divide and rule that's the sweet spot is some sort of category that's above the individual right because if you if you get people to really think of themselves and everybody else as unique individuals then divide and rule isn't going to work very well because they'll see themselves as having solidarity as individual human beings who should have rights or whatever right so if you think about like uh, Thaddeus Russell again, right? He would talk about like everyone saying like this whole social justice war is like grew out of postmodernism and his lack of understanding about it was like all the, and I, I think in some ways it did. And he and I could have argued about that more than we did, but that in some ways 
these people are absolutists, right? They're making essentialist claims based on race. So what is what is postmodernist subjectivist about what these people are doing, right? Like that's yeah. where he was like, I'm not I'm not making this relation. And it was a fair argument. And I think that there there was an attempt to do that through like intersectionality that just became like the division wheel of fortune ultimately. But mm -hmm. eventually it was like originally it was set up to be like, you know, uh, uh, to have a richer understanding of of your human experience as a member of these different groups. Right. Man, woman, gay, straight, black, white, um, you know, all of these different these different attributes that make up you. Uh, but it wound up just getting totally politicized, almost like it was a part of one of these plans or somebody looked at that. If, if it was designed with good intentions, and I have no reason to believe that it wasn't, somebody or some group of people saw that as endlessly exploitable. That's one of the things that we're, we're living with right now. Yeah, yeah. Focusing on, on those types of characteristics and, and, uh, divisions, um, for a divide and, and rule strategy, I think it's like just the most effective type for preventing people from ever making common cause or having a decent amount of empathy, broadly speaking, right? Because in my mind, at least, and you know, maybe this is just my own ideology and philosophy or whatever, but to me, it seems like you could simultaneously like think of yourself as a unique individual who's worthwhile, but then also simultaneously like identify all human beings as being like you like this is sort of sort of an eastern idea of of kind of seeing yourself in the other and you know that, that the old cliche that, that people think of as being kind of empty hippie talk like oh i'm one with the universe or whatever but there's something to that uh, particularly when you're talking about like understanding when you develop the the kind of like deep archetypal empathy that somebody like joseph campbell or, or somebody like that would talk about mm -hmm. um it's when you look into the other person and see yourself in them yeah, it merges perfectly with a Western idea that the the smallest minority is the individual, right? Yeah. You yeah. Know, like those two things go together, I think, actually really nicely. Yeah. And there there's a possibility for, you know, some of the things that have been going on lately to have 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 cultivated that type of a that type of a response, right? That's much more about um, you know, recognizing the uniqueness and value of yourself as an individual human being, not as a member of this group or that group or whatever, but then also extending that with empathy to how you view other people and to say, you know, the, the, this person is a different race, gender, sexual preference, political party, whatever it is, but I still have a, have a ton in common, you know, unless they're an outright psychopath, like there's still some decent humanity in them. And, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I, like, I, I feel like that's the only, that's the only way to get out of this without things just continuing to escalate and spiral and snowball is to have somehow, and I don't know how, you know, and there's, there's no, there's no like charismatic leader or orator that's successfully pushing that kind of message. I mean, there's, you know, different podcasters and commentators here and there that are pushing something like this, but as far as, you know, an equivalent of like a Martin Luther King type figure who's who's able to, you know, really kind of make people stop and look at each other, or a Gandhi type figure or something like that. Somebody who's able to really get a lot more people to to empathize. I mean, because if you look at like some something like like George Floyd getting murdered in the immediate aftermath of that, it seemed to me like vast majority of Americans, black, white, left, right, whatever looked at that 
and looked at, you know, some other police abuses and, and killings and whatever. And, and I think there was even amongst like kind of red Americans, um, you know, right wingers, like a sense of like, yeah, what happened to George Floyd's pretty messed up. And yeah, maybe they're overdoing it with the SWAT raids and the milita- militarization of cops. And yeah, maybe cops in some of these big cities, especially are kind of really out of control. And like, yeah, maybe we ought to do some reforms or do something constructive to get. And then yeah. next thing you know, the way the narrative got molded both by the political class and by the media was to foment a race war rather than black and white people coming together race conscious and saying, Hey, we're all getting screwed by the cops and fine. Maybe some of us are getting screwed disproportionately than others for various reasons. But the idea that, that for example, police abuse and all that is, is a problem that only affects one, one race or whatever is silly. And it seems to me like there's, there's no chance to make any positive changes to the system unless you could get people across racial and even partisan lines and whatever to come together uh, to make some sort of common cause. Okay, so we talk about divisions as created or exploited. You know, this is one of the the suspicions that now I'm ascribing conspiracy theory that maybe you're not. And I thought you were very cautious in the episode about you know the connections you made between uh, the stories you told about the past and the situation of today, but. Uh, race in the United States is an extremely reliable division that exists to exploit at a time where it was very useful, like we're talking about with the George Floyd thing, to um, exploit a division, right, for the sake of ruling uh, perhaps more efficiently. Now, created divisions are also discussed, and I think in that show – you talked about the Lawler experiment, like with differentiation. It was an experiment where there were two subordinates and an authority figure. And there would be threats used by the authority figure against one subordinate and co-optation of the other subordinate. And this would actually produce, I don't know, a reliable battle between the subordinates who have more common interests than they're realizing in in the, in this situation and i want to ask you just to elaborate a little bit more on on that experiment but then i want to tie that to not just what's happening today but another event uh that i've been talking about a lot this week and also comparing to the current situation that happened almost 20 years ago but is there anything that you think the audience needs to know about uh, the, the findings of this Lawler experiment? Yeah, well, the, the short version is it was trying to look at different divide and conquer or divide and rule strategies um, using a, a very small microcosm type of experiment. And so the idea was mm. you would have a little scenario set up in which there was a boss, quote unquote, with two subordinates. And uh, I think the boss was like a a, a part of the experiment but the subordinates were not, they were, you know, test subjects. And so they were just testing two different divide and rule strategies. One was, was punishment where basically you're, you're doing or threatening something negative to one subordinate, but not the other. And the other was co-optation where you're like doing something nice or promotion or some sort of, you know, privilege or perk or whatever to one subordinate, but not the other. And looking at, um, you know, both of these 
could cause some amount of like divide and rule where the subordinates would be prevented from making any sort of solidarity, solidarity or common cause. But the co-optation, the more positive version of it actually was more effective. So in other words, if you're, if you're doing divide and rule, uh, you can do it in part by like treating one party worse than the other and then mm. leveraging the animosity that's caused by that. But it's risky because Sometimes, at least, if you if you treat one party worse, it's possible that the other party in some circumstances might have some sense of empathy or solidarity. And so I, I can remember this as a kid with siblings, like sometimes um, and it would depend on the specific circumstances. But like sometimes if one of my parents was like disproportionately mean or whatever to one of my siblings, I'd feel a lot of empathy and solidarity with them and really kind of feel like, Hey man. Yeah. Okay. Even though this time mom or dad or whoever wasn't being hard on me, like I really feel for you. And I'm like, I'm on your side, bro. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas if your parent, let's say gives your sibling some kind of ridiculous gift or something like that, and then doesn't for you, that's more likely to cause you to not feel a sense of common cause and solidarity. Right. Uh, that's yeah. more likely to cause you to feel envy and resentment and to, to sort of be like, well, screw that SOB and whatever. And then from, you know, from the parents, obviously this is not good parenting technique, but, you know, from the parent uh, perspective, if their deliberate idea is divide and rule, they, they get the, keep the kids rivals with each other so that the kids can't plot against the parents. Obviously, I'm, I'm a, a proponent of much more positive uh, versions of parenting than this in real life. But, um, yes. you know, <laughs> if you were simply trying to like rule over and exploit and boss around your kids, that would be a more an even more effective strategy than just being meaner to one kid would actually be being nicer to one kid and not the other. So, yeah. Right. And then you could draw whatever conclusions you want about like how this is done at a macro level uh, when you're talking about giant groups of people, right? It obviously opens the door. And of course you could always do both, right? In, in different situations and, and at different times, you could sometimes be using more carrot, more stick, you know, disproportionately to one group versus the other. Well, I, I think there's two versions of it going on right now. And if we're just using general terms like threat versus co-optation, threat could be – if we want to extend that to like insult, right? Trump is certainly doing a version of this and all the enemies of Trump are are doing a version of this where uh, certainly around what's happening with COVID – there is threat and insult against people who are not being obedient, right? Who are not being conformist and they're being attached to Trump. And Trump has had his own version of this with like, who is he, who is he rewarding and who is he threatening or insulting throughout his whole presidency? And obviously during that time, division in the country, it's just like a back and forth between these two adversaries, uh, has grown, uh, considerably. Like I, I didn't think we'd be this far. Four years uh, later, even though I knew things were bad in 2016 and 2017. But we, I, I think we see the threat versus co-optation strategy in managing the whole COVID narrative. But, you know, the other things that I've been focused on this week, I just put out a bonus show today with Richard Grove called Our Post-Proof World, which is, um, are we past a point? Like just reflecting on the the lessons of like, really trying to understand what happened with the September 11th attacks and the reaction to them and um, the the wars that followed and, and all of the consequences that we still face today that some people are, you know, don't even realize because they've just been boiled in that water effectively, uh, but slowly. 
what can we learn that we we put out another show also with Rich and Ricky uh, Verandis on Wednesday called uh, Some Things We've Learned in the Last 19 Years, comparing these two situations. But while we see with COVID uh, very much a threats versus co-optation approach, 9-11 was like total threat, right? There was no division. It was like everybody is threatened the same way. And I just thought that was like an interesting distinction that also made me suspicious about what might be happening right now. And I don't say that I'm not embedding any conclusion in that, but it is undeniable right now. And I think it goes just beyond like it's good business. It's good business for politics and it's good business for media to divide people, which it certainly is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously the... The way that people communicate today through social media, it's good business for all those platforms as well. But it seems to be something beyond that, right? There seems to be a strategy in play now that was not in play during 9-11. And maybe it was just that was such a novel event that there were no two – everybody's response was so uniform that there were no – clear sides to pit against each other those sides emerge once it's like now that we've had this unity that we've had this total threat used effectively against everybody for two years now we're taking it to iraq you know uh and then division appeared right and then maybe the the uh you started to see the the emergence of of divide and uh rule type strategies on the u.s population around the war Mm. uh but i i think the the question here is just general observations about the current situation, what's happened over the last two months. Is it apparent that these tactics are in play to manage the situation or am I going too far? I would say that I'm, I'm somewhat uncertain as to how much of this is like really big picture orchestrated versus different people and different institutions and interest groups and whatever pushing divide and conquer in different ways for their own kind of short-term benefit and maybe not even always really thinking or caring or seeing the big picture. And so I I think it's possible that there's multiple things going on at different levels. I think it's like, if you get to the really, really high power elite levels, it's I think likely that at least some of those characters you know, your George Soros level people and that sort of thing are deliberately trying to do certain things. I, I, I think that's very likely. Uh, I, right. I don't have the documents as of this recording, but, um, you know, as far as when you start to go a little bit lower down the, the power scale, when you're at the level of like uh, media corporations and media personalities and celebrities and it's useful idiocy. Yeah. Yeah. Mid to high level politicians and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Like the media, it's pretty clear that, that the entire corporate media other than maybe Fox news has been doing what they've been doing because they're trying to hurt Trump and they don't particularly care if they start a civil war or a race war. If it results in Trump not being president anymore, they don't really care. Um, and then, yeah. you know, and, and then the right is doing their version of divide and conquer partly in reaction and to defend Trump and, you know, to, to, to defend what they see as, you know, great America or whatever. And so, yeah, I think, 
I think on some level, people are just pursuing their own self-interest short and medium term as they perceive it. And yeah, some of them may be useful idiots and, and that sort of thing for sure, no question. Um, I, I think in, just in terms of comparing something like 9-11 to something like COVID slash George Floyd fallout, whatever you want to call it, Mm. that there's there's two different two different things going on and that they're two of the oldest tricks in the book right it's hard to say which one is older because one of the oldest tricks in the book is divide and conquer divide and rule another one is pick a fight with foreigners right which is kind of its own kind of its own thing where it's just you know if you're the old line from shakespeare was it henry the fourth henry the fifth i forget where he says be at thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels that action hence born out may waste the memory of the former days right the idea is if you're ruling over people and they're starting to like not like you as a ruler and starting to cause trouble and the nobles are complaining and people are are bristling under your taxes and whatever it is and people are starting to like maybe look at you and say like oh maybe he shouldn't be king anymore right um, one of the coolest things you can do if, let's say, there's not the opportunity to do divide and rule within your population effectively or whatever, or it's just not something that, that you're, you understand or whatever, um, one of the things you can just do is pick a fight with another country and get everybody mm-hmm. riled up and patriotic, and that will unify them in a way that's useful under those circumstances. Because under those circumstances, you're worried, if you're worried about people unifying against you, again, one thing you can do is figure out how to disunify them. But another thing you could do is how to get get them unified, maybe even get them more unified than they were. They were kind of unified against you. Get them more unified, but against somebody else. Extra, yeah. That's another thing that you find going back to ancient times, as far as we know, that, for example, the Romans might pick a fight with somebody, one of their neighbors, if, let's say, the harvest is bad and people are miserable and the, the, they're re- resisting taxation and the emperor isn't popular or whatever, well, just figure out some stupid excuse to go fight the Germans or something. And uh, a lot of people are going to just go rah, 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 team Rome, team Rome. And they'll forget all about they, they can't find a job and their life sucks and taxes are bad. And like, they'll forget about it. They'll, they'll get wrapped up in patriotism. And in, in, in the modern day, it means they'll be wrapped up watching the news of, Oh, is team America winning the war? And, and they're not paying attention to like, yeah, but those same uh, evil and incompetent rulers are still screwing you over and um, all that, but they don't care. They're just looking at, hey, are we winning the war? And it turns into a sporting event. So there's a phenomenon in the in the current year that suggests that tactic is broken, at least in this country, where uh, at one point we have uh, you know pretty credible information that the disease that people are dealing with might have originated in a lab in China right? That this actually could be some form of biological warfare. Now, if you think about like the evidence of that versus the evidence of uh, like what happened on 9-11 and who was behind on 9-11, I would say like looking at both, they kind of hold equal weight, right? And as far as the public is concerned, you don't have proof that either one is more true than the other. Right. So it's it's just kind of a wash as far as like credibility is concerned. Like, yes, it was this whole attack was directed by uh, this group that lives in caves and uh, you know, Wiley Coyote style lives in caves and hates us for our free and capricious lifestyles. And they organize this. And and I mean, obviously, we understand that there are people in the world who have the motivation to do those kind of things. We've seen that play out over the last 20 years with ISIS. And uh, we, we know that is a real thing. 
Uh, so there's that, but the average person is just choosing to believe, right? They're choosing to believe that story because they've been told that story. So it's not like this Chinese bioweapon thing or even the lab leak theory that I, I think has been presented by pretty uh, credible sources as well. If Trump repeats something like that now, there's no unification over a foreign threat. It's like Trump is a racist for saying that it's China's fault. So the power of that unify everyone under the ruler tool that has been so reliable all the way back to, you know, back to prehistory is now like unusable because of the division in this country. So I just thought that was like an interesting switch. Like there is no, and I was, I was saying on a podcast, I was just talking to a woman who ran a tutoring business. So I don't know why this came up, but this is before anyone was talking about COVID. And I said, there is no, there is no 9-11 of the second decade in the 21st century, right? There is no event. I'm telling if aliens invade, there is not going to be unification, uh, like what existed after September 11th. And I was correct. This, I, I don't even think I knew what COVID was when I said that, but that seemed to uh, be accurate, right? Where <laughs> this is a, a, a far bigger and more sustained threat, accepting, you know, what the, what the narrative has been about it. Uh, so, so as far as the average person's perception of what's going on right now, a much bigger threat than 9-11, um, when you look at all of the dominoes that can fall because of it, uh, and that extends all the way to things like international relations with an extremely powerful uh, nuclear country like China. I think just the, the overall idea of like, what would it take or would anything uh, be able to cause something analogous to like the unification of the country that happened right after Pearl Harbor or in the immediate aftermath of 9-11? Would that even be possible? And if so, like, what would it take? Because I can definitely imagine that if the aliens from Independence Day showed up and started lighting stuff up, that basically what would happen is whatever Trump, whatever Trump's response was to it, about half the country would completely go against it. So if, if Trump said, ah, oh, the aliens, all right, we can work out a deal with them and whatever, they'd be like, oh, you traitor, you, 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 you human race traitor, uh, making a deal with those <laughs> evil aliens. But if Trump said, oh, we're going to kick those aliens ass and, and, and make America great or some crap, uh, those same people would be like, no, the aliens are fine. How dare you? And so you're racist against those aliens, whatever. Right. right. So yeah. And, and I, I've heard in a few places and I can't say I've done any, any kind of deep research into this, but I've heard in a few places, like on some podcasts and things, Certain people um, who, who seem to know what they were talking about saying that uh, China, the Chinese government has been uh, in recent years using its financial heft and influence to stoke the flames of like racial tension in the United States by like sponsoring and encouraging SJW woke type stuff. Mm hmm. 
and that, you know, whereas everyone, everyone wants to point the finger, at least uh, the Democrats at Russia and say, oh, Russia's interfering, interfering and trying to, you know, stoke up divisions and whatever. And maybe that is going on to some extent. But um, from from what I heard about this Chinese situation, it's like sounded like the Chinese were way more serious about it. Right. They weren't just buying some crappy ads on Facebook that maybe affected a few thousand people or whatever, like that. They're right. they're funneling money into American uh, academic institutions and things like this. Um, to to mold things in certain ways, and so, you know, notice how notice how the 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 corporate press responds, even for someone pointing out that the virus came from China is like, what are you racist, right? And think about how many, like, uh, what was it? Was it uh, Mayor De Blasio who was saying? Um, or, or was it the governor there in New York? I forget. One of them was basically saying at the beginning of all this, go celebrate Chinese New Year. Uh, go, go, you know, party in New York City. Nancy Pelosi, same thing in San Francisco. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're racist if you don't want to go out and party. The same yeah. people that then like in, in a couple of weeks were saying you're a murderer if you want to go outside. Um, in the early phases, they were playing the race card simply because they felt that it was a way to, to dig at Trump. But that they were playing on some pre-existing ideas that the Chinese government itself may have been, you know, sponsoring. And again, I'm not saying that I believe every aspect of this or have all the information. I'm just saying I've heard some things in different places that definitely made me say, hmm, as far as they oh. might be playing that game. And because right. of the legacy of yeah. that, if, for example, the, the U.S. And, and Chinese Navy got into a scrap over some stupid coral reef atoll in the South China Sea and it turned into a shooting war – would such a thing cause the American public to unify in the same way it did say after Pearl Harbor? And that's a, that's a very, who knows question. Like, are we, are we so uh, divided? Has, has the Manichaean temptation been just, you know, jacked to 11 so hard yeah. that even if China just like unilaterally nuked a city and it was like undeniable, that's what had happened. Would there still be a certain percentage of people who'd be like, yeah, but, you know, because they didn't want to go along with Trump's response to it or whatever. I mean, it's just it's it's crazy to think about if there is some master plan and there is, you know, some people in smoke filled rooms that are just flat out pulling all these levers and manipulating everything. Real puppet masters. Will they eventually try and play the World War Three card? And will it work? Yeah. So the things to contemplate right now, and it doesn't matter. I don't think you and I or the audience has to come to a conclusion. I think what's important is that we get people talking about this tactic and sharing this information, embedding it into the conversations they have with people, the things they post online. We could be looking at, okay, maybe this is a back and forth between the two political parties in the United States who are both trying to use aspects of divide and rule against each other. Then you could extend it to maybe this is the globalist thing and the target is the United States generally. Uh, China as a separate project. Right. Or I'm sure the, the there's a, a strong alliance between globalism and China, just like moving the world power center to China. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a very complicated relationship there that I don't think anyone fully has worked out. But what's important is understanding the process that's in place and understanding the importance of not participating in it, it like it, pointing it out and not participating in it. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Yuri Brizmenov? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, so G. Edward Griffin interviewed this guy back in the 80s, and he claimed to be – this is another name that's been coming up all the time on my podcast and in my my bonus stuff. But 
Yuri Bezmenov claimed to be a Soviet defector. He was in the KGB and he told G. Edward Griffin in this interview in the 1980s, like, we don't spend all our money on spying. We spend all our money on subversion. And if we're going to have like the, the resistance of a country like the United States, a westernized country to a Marxist revolution, like Marxist revolutions are a cakewalk in countries that are already like Venezuela where the government is just hopelessly corrupt. If, if you're talking about a third world country, we can do a communist revolution there. No sweat. Uh, I mean, maybe there are exceptions like Afghanistan, where people just don't even get the frame that they're trying to operate in. But he said in the United States, it's, it's going to be a decades long process. And we're going to need like 15 or 20 years for demoralization. And demoralization has to happen on all of these fronts. It has to happen in religion. It has to happen in education. It has to happen in media. It has to happen in culture. And then once we, it's like, uh, Breitbart said that politics is downstream from culture. I think he was the originator of that statement. I would say that politics in- exists inside of culture, right? Culture captures politics because political beliefs are affected by cultural beliefs. You look at how like politicians have to talk and respond to things. They're dictated by the culture. So you could say that's downstream, but I really think it's more of a capture. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it more in terms of like a, a back and forth cyclical relationship mm-hmm. there where, where politics and culture is the same, the idea of art imitating life and life imitating art. Um, that, that's how I, I think about the relationship between politics and culture, that there's this kind of constant back and forth kind of cyclical you know, cycle of it where politics influences culture and culture influences politics and back and, you know, on and on and on. No, that's actually, that's a really good insight. And I, I totally agree with what you're saying because once you have that cultural buy-in to let's just say Marxist ideas in this case, then the culture applies those things to law and order, uh, societal relations, uh, international politics and then it kind of circles back into the culture. Like once things get legislated, it affects the family. It affects people's like the services that go- that government provides, like healthcare. Yeah, obviously, we see now uh, the fallout of all the uh, the George Floyd stuff is affecting the labor force. In like people keep coming to me and saying. This is what's happening at my work. They're saying we have to do this training. So now they've taken ideas from like one of the the earliest inserts, which is education, obviously the first place you go, right, if you're trying to subvert a culture. And those ideas that exist in these uh, academic like non-real-world feedback loop bubbles in these social scientist program, like uh, White Fragility, that that Robin D'Angelo book, now you're that is being held over you. Like you wanted to make fun of this and say these were like stupid, um, naive uh, academics who had no idea how the real world really worked or, you know, they were uh, race pimps or whatever. Now your job depends on buying into what they're saying. So that's, I, I mean, if you want to talk about a back and forth, of screwing ideas into a society that definitely uh, seems to back that up. But, you know, the, the plan that Bismenov outlined is like through all of these different theaters, right? The theater of ideas, the structure of society, the lives of the people in the society. We will do this demoralization for decades if we need to, and then we'll move on to destabilization. 
And that's a much faster process. And once society is effectively destabilized, effectively destabilized, he said that would take about five years, right? Hmm. So if you look at the world of Trump announcing for president, I don't know, five years and three months ago, and the world of today, what follows destabilization is crisis. A Hmm. crisis will take about six months, and then you move on to normalization. Hmm. So for everybody who uh, is in my Facebook feed – who loves posting shit from CNN and MSNBC, and there was no bigger problem in the world than Trump-Russia collusion a year ago, I hope they'd still be interested in a Russia conspiracy because that's where these ideas originated. And maybe, I wouldn't put it past Russia, Russia sort of wandered off quietly into the night, you know, uh, 30 years ago. And if you look at the culture there, their 20th century, the fact that that would just go away, it it seemed very weird to me. But uh, yeah, another culprit uh, could certainly be China using the same kind of playbook. But it seems like all of that stuff has happened in the United States. And people have pointed the fingers in different places, right? Uh, postmodernism, the Frankfurt School, uh, outright Marxism coming in through, uh, you know, the literary world or the Hollywood world or a- acad- academia. But everything that Bezmenov warned uh, G. Edward Griffin about 35, 40 years ago uh, seems to have happened at this point. And here we are in crisis. And the only step that followed crisis was normalization. Well, um, I guess normalization could be good or bad, depending on the, on the details. I guess the devil's always in the details. Yeah. The thing I wonder about is if, if there is some sort of a, a grand plan that some puppet master is you know, orchestrating or whatever. Um, is it also possible that even, even if such a thing is going on, that things can get out of their control? Absolutely. Yeah. In other words, yeah, they, they think they've got it, you know, they're, they think it's all going according to plan and whatever, but we are a messy, unpredictable uh, bunch. And, you know, once you get certain processes started in humans, sometimes you can't always just hit the off button when it starts to go off the rails. So in other words, you know, they're, I think there probably is or are various divide and rule strategies being pursued by various actors simultaneously. I think all of them think they can keep it under control. Think they can, they can keep, it's like a, it's like a fire they're starting and they're like, don't worry, it's controlled burn. (laughs) We're doing this in a way that's going to, it's going to work to our advantage. But just like every now and then a controlled burn gets out of hand and you burn down the whole forest. What happens if you're, Especially when I when I look at like setting aside ethics and ideology, the the skill level of just the current political elite in America, like I think they're vastly in, incompetent. Now this doesn't mean that they can't do anything and that they don't get away with plenty of bad stuff, but that they they don't have the competence and prudence of earlier generations of America's political elite, like you know the the Dulles brothers or people like that where you look at them and like oh they're, they're evil and horrible and whatever but but there's a certain amount of just competence to them um that you look at our current generation and go like yeah no those 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 are not the same caliber of you know elite rulers and so right, yeah. is it possible that the people running the show think they got it all under control and it mm-hmm. gets out of hand and spirals beyond whatever like they think oh yeah we can leverage some racial tensions and some ideological tensions for now to keep people distracted so i mean god forbid 
you know, black and white, Republican and Democrat, all united against Wall Street and the, and the military industrial complex, right? I mean, can't have that. Yeah, right. So, so we, can, we can leverage them against each other. And yeah, there'll be some violence. Some people will die. It's already happened. We've seen it. You know, people shooting each other in the streets over, over party differences and whatever. But they think like, oh, don't worry. We can, we can keep a lid on it. We can, we can keep it a controlled burn and make sure it doesn't get out of hand because I don't think – and I'm not saying it's definitely going to go this way, but it's possible it spirals out of control into like flat out, you know, Mad Maxi sort of crazy, uh, or or even just you know collapsing Yugoslavia sort of scenarios, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's really possible, really possible. I'm not saying super likely, but it's possible if it spirals out of control to that point. And I don't think that the the people at the top want that. I don't think they want full on Yugoslavia style meltdown and you know all that goes along with that because. If you're the farmer trying to farm this place, you don't want the farm to completely burn down and all the animals just go feral and are eating each other, right? It's a really good point. Yeah. And the farming comparison is like if you look at the thought and the care and the imagination that's been put into raising chickens, something with an IQ of two that is going to yield a few hundred eggs and maybe in the end a few pounds of meat, like how much thought do you think has been put into you? So I think it's a foregone conclusion. I mean, the people who've like read God or like who've read like the underground history of the United States, we know that the answer is yes. I understand that because it's so far beyond um, most people's view of the world or things that they've thought about. It does sound like a very uh, far-fetched story, the kind of scientific management that has gone on even just in the last 100 years. So – that part is is certainly a foregone conclusion that attempts have been made, that projects are underway. But I think that's a really great point that you're making, right? Like, whoops, what if we burn down the whole farm while we're just trying to scare a couple of cows here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way I look at, for example, the the origins of World War One, where, you know, I, I do believe there's some conspiratorial aspects to that, particularly amongst some of the British elite. But I also think that it spiraled out of anything they intended or expected to happen pretty rapidly. I don't think that the elites of Europe would have triggered World War I when and how they did if they had known exactly where it was going to go. I, I think that was another case of a, of a fire getting out of control. Um, and, you know, they did their best to manage it as it unfolded and to manage the aftermath and, and to try and leverage it as best they could. But I honestly believe that while they may have plotted to get the war going, they did not intend it to go down all the, the, the it's, it's a Pandora's box scenario, right? Whether you're talking about yeah. an international war or whether you're talking about stoking divisions inside of a country, it is a Pandora's box that the leaders always feel like they're in control and they can always just, you know, hit the brakes whenever is appropriate. But that's not always the case, you know, whether it's war or whether it's internal um, conflict and division, you know, once you open that Pandora's box, you don't get to control what comes piling out of it, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Iraq is another really uh, great example that that's more immediate yeah. where you have a lot of the same thinkers behind George W., that were there when his father, you know, got right up to the gates and claimed victory and then turned around and left. Mm -hmm. Right. 
and left, you know, like covert or, or garrison, like there was a definitely a stay behind presence, but it was in a continuing and escalating and protracting kind of war. And all of those people who were revolutionaries who had come from like, you know, being Trotskyites, the neocons were pissed. So when his son comes in with no foreign policy experience, it's like, hey, we have a great playbook. We have a great plan for afterwards. We know this is going to be easy. We have the military might. And, you know, Desert Storm and Desert Shield were, in the end, fairly operation, uh, easy operations, uh, <laughs> as pointed out in uh, the film Wag the Dog, which also keeps coming up. Mm. Uh, but that conception of what Iraq could be it didn't translate to that in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. It became – and I I think there were people close to uh, HW who even said this is a quagmire if we go any further. Mm-hmm. And we're not getting reelected in the middle of a quagmire. And fortunately for George W., it was like the reelection question came up right before it really just turned into a forest fire, you know, and he did get reelected. So – um yeah, I, I think Iraq is another great example of, um, you know, a design that fails and quickly spins out of control. Yeah, it's it's always, you know, one of the, the features of those who wish to rule large groups of people that they're always very arrogant. They're always, you know, this is one of the the faults of any form of san, uh, any form of central planning in any way is this belief that like you can plan a whole nation's economy and it's all going to go according to plan and everything's going to work out and there'll be no imbalances or you know ridiculous uh, surpluses and shortages of different things and it's the same thing the idea that you can have this nice controlled war or nicely controlled leveraged thing i mean in terms of of divide and rule like if you're skillful and lucky you can do it for a while, mm-hmm. but I don't think anyone is lucky enough, and I don't think you can always assure enough generations of leaders with enough Machiavellian skill that they're always going to be able to keep a lid on things. You know, even the British eventually had to had to bail on India, right? Yeah, as as slick as they were for as many years as they were in ruling India, even even they eventually couldn't control the situation anymore. And obviously, for our purposes here, it's a much easier kind of pursuit with the uneducated, right? Sure. If you look at the the history of it, and um, it, it's almost like the fears throughout uh, colonial America, or like right through 19th century America, right through Reconstruction, is like keep Native Americans and Negroes away from each other. Yep. Right. And you talked about that a lot in the show. You mentioned this guy Richard Ludlum, who was just like a, a minister in the early 1800s, 1700s. Oh, so, yeah, maybe he was the 1700s. 1700s, yeah, yeah, further back, colonial colonial period, yep. Indians and Negroes are a check upon each other. Yes. Right? That was his message. And, um, you know, it kind of uh, – or the other thing that is said is um, we need to prevent intercourse between these two groups, which at the time means interaction. But then to bring, uh, you know, renegade history back into this – when you have these waves of immigration and you have people mixing together in the cities, all the fears – uh, for the scientific managers are around actual intercourse, right? Miscegenation mm. between Irish immigrants and black people. And it's like, shit, we got to stop these people from ever realizing that they have common cause. Yeah. And, you know, in that story, there's um, 
back to that experiment of, you know, co-optation as a divide and rule tactic, there's some of that going on, you know, like when, when Thaddeus Russell talks about how like the Irish and the Jews and the Italians for a while were like not considered part of team white people. And then like eventually they were sort of led into the club after they had gone through the proper channels and done the right uh, things or whatever to, to behave properly. But, but in a way you can think of that as, as like a co-optation strategy by the, you know, the, the like waspy elite types where it's like, Hey, uh, Irish and, and Italian and Jewish immigrants, you can sort of be part of team white too. And now that you're on our team, like there's no question you'll be with us and against whoever, the blacks, the Mexicans, the Chinese, you know, whoever it might be that we still want to kind of keep a boot on. So, yeah, I think that's those sorts of things in like the ethnic history of America. You see that co-optation happening and I'm, you know, not convinced it's always some deliberate grand strategy. I think sometimes people in power or elite people, I think sometimes they do some of these things just instinctively without always quite consciously understanding maybe what they're doing and why. I think sometimes some of them do very clearly as, as some of those things that I quoted from in that episode, like sometimes you very clearly find people like, yeah, we're doing divide and rule. We're doing it on purpose. We're doing it as much as we can um, right. very upfront. But I think sometimes that they're doing these things almost just sort of by habit or by instinct. Um, but of course, you know, the, the end result is, is, is pretty similar either way. Right. And whatever natural intelligence or wisdom you might have had as a Native American or a black person in America in the 19th century, you did not have access to political philosophy, right, to history of, um, you know, imperial pursuits. So you were disadvantaged when I said, you know, for our purposes, this is a it's a matter of being it's a much easier thing to perpetrate on the uneducated. And I think both of those groups would have fit into that as far as the type of education you need to actually defend yourself against these kind of things. Right. They, uh, you know, the, the working class in India, these, all these people were sitting ducks for whether it was, you know, American imperialism or British imperialism or anybody else who tried this. And unfortunately, you know, what sucks is if it's the Chinese trying to do it to America right now, sitting ducks, just the same. Yeah. I mean, these tricks like this that have been done countless times over thousands of years, they keep coming back to them because they keep working. I mean, if you're a magician and you've got only a couple of tricks in your bag, but man, do they just kill every single time and no one ever seems to get tired of them. They seem to just keep falling for the same old tricks over and over and over again. Like, why the hell would you even bother coming up with new ones? So as far as like outreach, would you offer any advice to the people listening? Like final question, I've kept you for two and a half hours here and I (laughs) certainly appreciate it, but just as far as moving beyond the cliche of divide and conquer, right? Which doesn't, you say that to somebody, it doesn't really mean anything. It's just an old cliche. Um, aside from sharing episode 205 of the Dangerous History podcast or this conversation that we've just had here, are there any interventions that you would uh, advise? I, I think it's hard to intervene on someone else. I suppose it's possible. Yeah. I think the most important thing is... I almost want to say self-policing, but I don't want to get into like that kind of like you, you becoming your own morality police of yourself. But the, the idea that um, you've got to kind of acknowledge your shadow in order to reconcile with it and be able to 
manage it in ways that it doesn't get out of get out of control and um, really really cause havoc. The idea that any of us could potentially be you know seduced by some bad ideology or or into some cult or whatever or terrible political movement just given the right circumstances and all that sort of thing is important because it's easy to look at people who are in the throes of some zealotry and go oh I'm I'm not like that I'm not prone to that. The reality is. You know, we're all tribal primates. We all have some amount of the Manichaean tendency in our, like, deep, not just in our conscious minds, but like in our in our kind of animal brains. You know, we we've got this tendency hardwired into us. I have the same tendencies towards this as everybody else. Yeah. Um, I've just I've learned about how these things work. I've I've studied the history, the psychology, all these sorts of things about it. Um, so, you know, I'm sure I, uh, plenty of people understand it better than me, but I've got a much deeper understanding of this than most people do. And so I'm able to see it in myself and sort of catch myself in the same way that like, if you understand, if you, if you're prone to depression and you understand how it works and what triggers it, you can manage it. You can kind of see it cropping up and go, Oh, I see what this is. All right. I know what I need to do to try and mitigate it and deal with it and whatever. And so I, I focus first and foremost on myself. And when I see myself, uh, like consuming too much of the type of media that stokes these feelings in you. Um, I, I take a break and, and I, I see it for what it is. And I stop, I try to avoid getting like pulled into those scenarios. I'm careful with, with how much time I spend on social media and what I'm doing with it to not get sucked into, you know, the, the really hardcore us versus them type stuff um, in that way. And, and I, I, Part of what inspired me to do that episode, and it's one of the episodes I'd say over the past year that I'm the most proud of, to be honest with you, is is that I saw online in social media, places like that, I saw people that I, that I had felt at least some ideological affinity with in the past. And in some cases, if there are people I, I knew of or even knew – people that I, I liked and respected and I saw them getting pulled into this stuff in one way or another, you know, on, on one side or the other of these different divisions and really like getting going all in and really starting to dehumanize everybody on the other side and, and fall prey to all the, all the, the worst aspects of this stuff. And, and it really, um, you know, it saddened me to, to see people who I thought might kind of know better being just played right into it just as much as any, you know, idiot who, who doesn't read uh, big books and stuff like that. And, and, it, and it really kind of made me sad. And I was like, don't you see what this is? You know, and that, that's what inspired me. I was in the middle of working on a Woodrow Wilson episode. And I, I put that aside for a week or however long it took to put together the divide and conquer episode. And I said, I, for whatever little bit, you know, with my modest little podcast audience, I can do to just get people to kind of see this for what it is. Because if you see the magician trick, if Penn and Teller show you how the magician does the trick, the trick doesn't really work anymore. You know, it's not magic. Right. And that was like, I, it's one of the most important podcast episodes that I think I've listened to this entire year. Wow. Well, thank and you. I appreciate that. Even though we have, uh, you know, probably a lot of crossover between our shows, I thought, Number one, it needed a reiteration, and then whatever uh, doesn't fit uh, into the overlap, they need to hear this too, the people from my audience. So I appreciate you taking all the time today to talk about everything uh, that we discussed, especially this. I think this is such an important and easily overlooked thing, even though it is ancient. Thank you very much, CJ. I look forward to the next one. Well, thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed it very much. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, 
there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. 
A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.